0: David Drake is the author of more than 60 novels, including the Hammer's Slammers series, the Star Hunters series, the Crown of Isles series, and many other novels and collections. His upcoming novel in the Lord of the Isles series is The God's Return. Thank you for speaking with me. David. Hi, Rick. Um, i glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> um, now, it strikes me, one of the things that you said that really fascinated me, that it was not me versus them, but us versus them. Yes, and this kind of camaraderie is is you know beautifully evoked in a science fictional setting with with hammer slammers and, and um. That's
1: it, why it, I couldn't sell them. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious. Uh, I, I I had been selling fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was my skills were of of a professional level, and. I started writing the Hammer Slammer stuff that I was just okay. This this is something I'm I'm doing. This is really good. This is genuinely different, uh, and it's real. And you know, this is a really neat. Year and a half, I could not sell a word. No. Boy, I was frustrated. Uh, <laughs> well, I was frustrated anyway.
0: So you were rejected by both the genre fiction and the literary fiction morals, because it strikes me that. I mean,
1: well, literary fiction wouldn't have taken anything written in genre, and I wasn't writing. Actually, I did write one story that was uh, mainstream, and I got—it was the darnedest—I was so desperate. Uh, But I I wrote a story about a fragging, and I sent it off to the, uh, geez, Michigan Quarterly. And I I, I got back the, the nicest rejection slip. Uh, dear Mr. Drake, uh, we, we cannot use this story, but we are very impressed by it. <laughs> I mean, it, was <laughs> uh, it you know, it's just straight, you know, th- this, is, this, is, this is a fragging. Um, and, and why? Um, and I, I look at it and, boy, that must have really freaked them out when that came <laughs> over their transom. <laughs> I
0: imagine so. Now, uh, they were nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you decided y- you needed the distance. Yes. Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> to, to, to create Hammer Slammers. Talk about that transmutation process. As a, as a writer, did you just sit down and immerse yourself in this new world that you were creating? Because no, you, no, 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 not oh really. really.
1: Oh. Uh, it, it was much simpler than that. Uh, you talk about uh, the new world you're creating. I wasn't. I was taking a crack armored unit, and that was the world I'd been living in for a year. And I all I did was give them ray guns instead of ninety millimeter main guns and Cal fifties. That's it. Wasn't hard at all. And I put them. the The only difference was I made it a mercenary unit um, rather than you know something happening on a single planet, um, and, and that that's. A, Common trope in science fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. Andre Norton did it extremely well. Uh, Jerry Pornell uh, did it a little later. Uh, very, very good work, uh, Clash by Night, by uh, Henry Cuttner and uh, C.L. Moore in 1943. I mean, you know, the, the, the using a mercenary unit rather than a, a national army is, you know, perfectly standard in the field. Uh, that's the only difference. Um well, know, there's one I, other
0: difference, too. Uh, the enemy. The
1: enemy <laughs> is them. The enemy <laughs> is always them. And I, in the Hammer series, the enemy is almost invariably uh, lower technology human colonists. that Somebody has hired a an expensive tank unit to go deal with lower technology F- you know frequently revolting peasants. And so that's not so very different either, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> now uh, and, and as I say, these stories did not sell. <laughs>
0: Uh, did they they didn't sell to like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction or no. who was that now how you sold to where yes
1: the, I'd, I'd i'd sold to analog i had sold to magazine of fantasy and science fiction uh i they they were bounced actually it was a funny one um the editor of analog uh ben Bova, quite a good guy uh who'd bought story from me and bought other stories from me later but uh, his rejection slip was well we've got Joe Haldeman and Jerry Pornell doing the same thing and I don't think we need a third of these. Uh, th- the notion was that Jerry Pornell's uh, Berg's Legion and uh, Joe's Forever War and my hammer slammers were all the same. And the only similarity they actually had is they were all war stories written by people who actually who actually were veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the only similarity. But it was as m- this was really very
0: new in mm-hmm. the early '70s. Sure, sure. This is, uh, nobody had ever seen anything like this before because coming out out of a well. Except, Will Tolkien came out of World War One. <laughs>
1: yes, but but you talk about distance, and mm-hmm. yes, uh, I I actually had some academic twit uh, when I I made some comment about Mordor could not have existed without the Western Front in World War One. Oh well, there's much more to it. We just talking about the Black Country, you know, you, you idiot. You, you've never been in a war. You've never been a veteran. You cannot conceive. Of what that did to Tolkien, it's really obvious to another veteran what it did to Tolkien,
0: especially but. since he was a scholar. Yes, absolutely, I mean, and, and as so yourself. Yes. As <laughs>
1: that, that's it. Uh, you know, people like him and uh, Robert Graves and um, um, oh, blocking on his name, the the poet uh, Siegfried Sassoon. We're all in the same uh, you know battalion of the Welsh fu- Fusiliers. Yeah, you you bet. Uh, must have been not terribly <laughs> dissimilar, actually. <laughs> uh, it,
0: how? Where, when did Hammer Slammers first get published? Who did it, and what did they say to you? Oh, that's that's an interesting
1: story. Um, I'd, I'd been writing the stories, and they'd been being bounced. And one of the places that had bounced them was Galaxy magazine. And the editor of Galaxy was fired. And you know, it was Eiler Jacobson, who was in a field that has had a number of bad editors. He's arguably one of the worst editors in the field. <laughs> uh,
2: I, I don't mean because... I mean, you, you know,
1: th- this is a man who took over from uh, from Fred Pohl in 1943 and then took over from Fred Pohl in 1970. And, you know, he was terrible both times, and Fred was a wonderful editor both times. And, you know, I it, it, that's near here nor near there. <laughs> but... Um, His assistant, however, had recommended purchase of the stories.
2: Mm.
1: His assistant was Jim Bain. Well, Jacobson was fired, and Jim Bain became editor, and he then ran around and uh, got back a number of stories whose, whom he had recommended to purchase. And, Jacobson had rejected, and uh, years later I, I thanked Jim for that. And he said, "Oh, David, uh, Jake rejected much better stories than yours. Uh, <laughs> he, he rejected uh, an Ursula Le Guin story the day before the revolution that went on to win the Nebula. Mm. I mean, he was really a terrible
0: editor, <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, you know, Jim got the the first two Hammer stories back, and um, he admitted to me after the fact he didn't like him." Didn't like him, didn't understand him. Uh, They're written with a flat affect. Mm -hmm. And I... But they were literate. Mm -hmm. He... They would fill pages that he would not have to spend a lot of time rewriting. Mm
2: -hmm. And at
1: the time, Galaxy had payment problems, so they were not getting stories from people who could sell elsewhere. Mm. And... um,
0: a Matter of Economic Necessity. Yes, l- exactly. That led you to the crea- publication it's of th- Hammer Slammers.
1: Exactly. And later Jim and I became close friends and all that. But um, no, he bought them simply because he had pages to fill that he couldn't send out a magazine with blank pages in it. It was really that simple. And uh, I wrote three other stories while in a series while Jim was editor. Uh he bought one and rejected the other two. The fact I kept writing them indicates that there was something more going on than me writing for money, mm. although I didn't know what it was. Uh, as I say, it was therapy. But I, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but I did it.
0: <laughs> now, you were a lawyer
1: when you were Yes, was I was. Uh, I, I was assistant town attorney for the town of Chapel Hill. This is a small town in the South in the
0: seventies. Well, yes, but, but it's it's a
1: university mm-hmm. town. Th- sure. Think of it as, as Ann Arbor in the South. But yeah.
0: Talk about um the contrast. I mean, you're just a study in contrast here. You're writing weird science fiction, and I presume you and you were probably still um, you know, reading both fourth century. Roman history oh, sure. and Lovecraftian fiction oh, sure. and science yeah. fiction, yeah. and you're a town attorney in a small town. I, That's I, I
1: rewrote ordinances. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if they needed changes in the dog ordinance, um, that was me. Uh, you know, if there was a <laughs> development question, that was me. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, it was very much, it was not criminal work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that, that was not my job. I, I was police attorney for a bit. I actually wrote the, uh, the policy that got the Chapel Hill Police hollow point bullets. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Highly qualified, I would say. Well, to I, <laughs> I, I, I was, yes, I, I got along fairly well with the, uh, with the police. Um, but uh, I, I've, I've had people ask, well, did you use a pseudonym? Uh, nobody was going to run into my fiction unless they read that sort of fiction. So y- you were self-selecting for people who would not be offended mm-hmm. by what I was writing and saying. Now and I didn't care. <laughs> I mean, that's that's <laughs> the other thing, but I didn't care. <laughs>
0: Talk, uh, did you do this in the morning before you went to work? After work? Uh,
1: after work, yeah, Most mostly after work, yeah. Um, I, I would sit in the evening. and, uh, But... But it was really a, um, it, it, this was a hobby. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was something I did. I, I wrote a bunch of stuff. I didn't, um, I didn't, I, I was not a serious writer in the sense that uh, a number of things I wrote, I never bothered typing up even to second, I, I wrote. Holograph. I wrote longhand. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of things I didn't ever bother typing up. Some of what I did type up, I didn't um, bother trying to put into final form and, and send off anywhere. Occasionally, I would finish a story uh, and then I would send it somewhere. Mm-hmm. I um, I would because I had been writing effective horror fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. Started getting what amounted to commissions, or somebody would say, "Hey, I'm opening a um, an original anthology. Can you do something for me?" Uh, I remember it's kind of a funny story too. Um, I um, wrote a Lovecraftian, literally Lovecraftian horror story for Ramsey Campbell you know, for New Tales of the Gluludl Mythos, Cthulhu, but it's it, Lovecraft. Explains that it's pronounced kludul. Oh <laughs>
0: boy, you can say that. I can't even, I can't even imagine
1: saying <laughs> it. Takes <that>. practice. <laughs> uh, I have that book, actually. Well, he, he was actually uh, asked, um, well, why I- if if you s- pronounce it kludul, why don't you spell it that way? And he said, oh, that's the That's the way the people in my dream spelled it and pronounced it. So. You know, I, I pass that on for what it's worth. Uh, but um, it took me five months to write that short novelette. And uh, I had just sent it off. And I got a phone call in the evening from uh, a guy named Roger Elwood, who was starting Laser Books. I remember laser books. Yes, Uh, I used to buy a lot of those. Well, uh, they destroyed the careers of quite a number of people. (laughs) And he tried to give I, you know, this is 1976. Mm -hmm. He he tried to give me a contract to write two novels, and I refused it, not because I thought it was a bad idea, but it had just taken me five months to write a novelette. I did not think I could write a novel and you can't cheat an honest man. I mean, I I looked at my skills, and I said my skill set is not sufficient to permit me to do this in a respectable fashion. Therefore, I've refused it. And so you stepped with your right foot out of the. Top. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and you know you you look like at people like Tom Montleone who yes, there his first novel is, and you know look where his career has gone. Mm-hmm. A- and, and I mean, it's it really was that that simple. But yeah, uh, everything is a choice.
0: Everything <laughs> is a choice. <laughs> now, now you've written a, a lot of kind of heroic fantasy. Yes,
1: I have. Or maybe heroicist. Oh, b- no, no, is both, both. I mean, I've I've written Tolkien-esque fantasy, mm-hmm. and I've written uh, Robert E. Howard-ish
0: mm-hmm. fantasy, both. But yes, uh, talk about that kind of fantasy and how your experience in Vietnam plays into that and gets transmuted into that kind of setting. Because you know, we think of fantasy, and we think of you know, like you say, Tolkien and Robert E. Howard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tell us how the 20th century gets turned into something before the first. Uh,
1: that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I um, all right. My my undergraduate background was history and Latin, mm-hmm. as I say, and um, I'm not so much. I am not so much a historian as an antiquarian mm. of stuff. Uh, you know, I get that's how Lovecraft is. Described himself well, yes, but that's actually correct, and mm-hmm. it's it's very different. Uh, it's a very different mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the the difference between Polybius on the one hand and Dionysius of Halicarnassus on the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you writing history, or are you writing down really interesting, neat bits about the past? Mm-hmm. A- and and that's a completely different attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it isn't that one is right and the other is wrong, but it is noteworthy that the the formal historians are generally, even the very good ones like Thucydides and Polybius, are trying to hammer reality into a template that fits their model, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas the antiquarians are likely to include information that the historians would exclude but which becomes valuable for a later generation which has a different paradigm Mm -hmm. and so there and and you you do unfortunately have the fact that the uh, the antiquarians may well be suckers you know they they may be believing nonsense but uh it's I find it's very funny uh, we know that the Carthaginians sent uh, <clears throat> a ship a, a group of ships around you know they they actually circumnavigated Africa mm-hmm. uh, from the from the eastern side around uh, Indian Ocean Atlantic Ocean and then up into the Mediterranean we know they did that mm-hmm. we know they did that because the account is, given by Strabo, uh, a Roman historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Strabo is giving it as an obvious lie. Mm, interesting. This, this, because he knows it could not be true because of what they say about the position of the sun. And mm-hmm. this could not be true. Well, What it means to us is they were below the equator. And they were accurately depicting what the sun looked like from below the equator. But because Strabo had never been below the equator and no one he knew had, he thought that the thing that actually proves they did what they claimed was false. And he gives it as a lie. And so there, there's where the historian is... You know, if it weren't that he wanted to make this obvious lie mm-hmm. obvious, he would have simply dropped that information because it couldn't be true. Mm. You know, there's where the historian is a problem and the antiquarian uh, will give you stuff that... This is kind of a weird thing
0: to be talking about. on a, uh, but, but anyway, it, it's <laughs> something no, that fascinates it, me. It, it's, uh, it's very pertinent, and I'll tell you why. I, I was looking at S.T. Joshi's work, uh, and, and one of the things he's very interested in is the worldview of writers. And your worldview is yeah. has some really startling, you know, high points on it that are extremely <laughs> wildly high points or
1: low points, as <laughs> the way you may, you may decide to choose.
0: Yeah, uh, but I think it really informs your fiction, and, and it informs your choice to use. Fantasy as a as a means of telling stories about now because that's one of the things that we re when we read science fiction or when we read fantasy or we read even historical historical fiction. Mm -hmm. There's this tendency to think that it's about that time that if you're reading uh, uh, somebody writes a story about you know, ancient Rome now that they're writing about ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. Or if they're writing about the far future, they're writing that's the story is really about mm-hmm. the far future. That's not the case. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That And, and that's something
1: uh, we are writing about our time. If we are writing about a different time, it is the different time through the filter of our time because that's all we know. But if you get deep in uh, I I did... Not, not something that's out yet, it'll... You know, it's a tour release in uh, July of 2010, uh, but I've written something with a real Roman background. And frankly, I'm a little concerned about it because I know a fair amount about Rome, and I'm giving people the attitudes of Romans of their day. And um, this isn't always politically correct, it isn't always very nice. And as I say in the preface, uh, there's going to be a lot of references to servants. Servant means slave. And you can have good masters and bad masters, and nonetheless, you are talking about what was under Roman law, furniture with a tongue. That (laughs) that was the technical term, furniture Mm -hmm. with a tongue. And when a 19th century lady's maid got slapped by her mistress, she might be afraid to to speak up or she'd lose her job. Uh, If... A Roman mistress got incensed at her maid uh, because she thought that the uh, maid was having it off with her own boyfriend um, when he'd come to visit her. She could have the maid whipped to death. And this
0: is, I'm sorry, this this is just the reality of the time. And your worldview decides to... Reveal that to us and talk about it because I've read, I mean, we've read lots of Roman history that hasn't included that. And so this is a part of your, this is a choice on your part too. It's not just history, it's a choice on your part to look at that part of the history and say, this is really what happened. Yeah, and and I'm not writing, look,
1: I'm not trying to write a book to say that slavery is bad any more than I was writing stories to say that war is bad. Mm -hmm. But if you show the reality, Uh, people will understand that it's bad. What they won't always understand is that you know it's bad. And in the early 70s, when the Hammer stuff started coming out, I had a lot of people uh, who considered me a monster because I was writing about these horrible, horrible things, and I didn't understand that they were horrible. I understood pretty well that they were horrible. I'd been there, thank you. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't Nobody had had to tell me that, you know, watching a a gut shot girl bleed out was horrible. Uh, She'd been hauling rice for the VC, and her escort shot at uh, Thunder Run at a a patrol, and the patrol shot back, and... um, the escort got away, and the girl, who was simply a fifteen-year-old from a village, who was being forced to push a bicycle loaded with rice down a stretch of road, was gut shot, and she died. And you know, um, that's horrible. And would the patrol have done the same thing? Yeah, yeah, they were shot at. They, you know, she was an enemy. It's do they were they happy that they'd killed a girl? No, but that's. That's what happens in the situation. I would describe things like that, and I would not say, and this was horrible. Uh, Well, the readers, the ones who weren't vets, certainly realized it was horrible, but they assumed because I didn't say so that I didn't know that. Hell yes, I knew that.
0: Um, But it's that flat affect. Mm -hmm. Um, The confusing the author and the narrator. Yes. In the storyteller. Yes, yes, but but
1: that's that's absolutely standard, and it is standard in any group, but it tends to be particularly the ones who are holier than thou.
0: Mm. Well, it's also, I mean, by keeping that flat affect, it makes your fiction more durable, through more readable now than it might have been. Yeah.
1: Uh, ac- actually, it's it's not an accident that the Hammer stories have been in print ever since. You know, their first book publication. Um, You know, there there has never been a time those have been out of print, which is really pretty remarkable. We're talking 30 years. (laughs) In in a small way, I was an innovator.
0: I wanted to ask you about uh, a man you mentioned earlier, Carl Edward Wagner. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us what happened to Carl Edward Wagner. He was a remarkably, remarkably talented man. Yes, he was. Um, but he, he, in Dr- the end, booze
1: he Jack Daniels no it's really that simple Jack daniels uh he he drank himself to death he drank himself out of the capacity to write connected narrative. His last novel uh came out in nineteen seventy eight by the time he died in 1994, he had made a number of attempts at writing a novel and he had they had all petered out at 20,000 words or less. Uh, the And I was there the whole time and I don't understand. But he, I think, I mean, you know, Carl always drank, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, this this does not make him unusual um, i think that he found himself unable to continue writing and then the drink took over rather than the other way around i you know i, I In the late 70s, when his capacity to write novels stopped, I do not think that it was the booze at that point that prevented it. Um, But the booze became all there was. Uh, And he used used other drugs also, but that was not... um,
0: Basically, his drug of choice was Jack Daniels. It's really that simple. Talk about his work as a fantasist. And and you know some of your relationship with him because there's a, there's not dissimilar. I mean, he has a very, uh, I'd say, uh, my foot land came out th- on the right foot instead of the left foot. Of perception as well.
1: Yeah, uh, there are, there are a lot of differences as well as similarities between me and Carl. He always intended to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you know that was his focus. Uh, he stayed out of Vietnam. Uh, very consciously, by going to to medical school, that was the one thing. Uh, medical school and divinity school; mm-hmm. those were the the two things that they would not draft you out of. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, you know, that was a conscious decision on his part. But he all he wanted to be an MD, and he, as as a Friend of his from uh, <clears throat> uh, from Kenyon College pointed out, uh, you don't have an undergraduate major from Kenyon and wind up with enough pre med courses to get into pre med or to, to get into medical school at UNC unless you're really working at it. And and he did. Uh, he wanted to be an MD and he wanted to be a writer, and he very consciously set out to do both those things and did them. Um, he was writing heroic fantasy.
2: Uh,
1: his, his starting place was uh, the Robert E. Howard's fiction, but he always emphasized that it was 19th century romantic literature, uh, Byron uh, Mattern, uh, Charles Mattern, the, the monk, uh, this sort of thing that was informing his view of heroic fantasy, and uh, a very highly educated man, a very intelligent man, uh, very knowledgeable on pulps, and an extremely impressive person in in all senses. But what happened was he went to drink. By the time he decided, he got disgusted with heroic fantasy because, I think, and a friend of mine who's cataloged his letters emphasizes this, uh, he became disgusted with the low quality of the fans he had writing heroic
0: fantasy. Uh,
1: there were Interesting.
0: He wanted readers who could engage him at the level he was writing at, which is Byronic. and I mean, yes. that's, that's, yes. that's, yes. that's yes. a high level of literature, and that's not the same as, as Robert E. Howard. As much as we like Robert E. Howard, he was not all Lord Byron. All <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And so at, at every convention, there'd be some 18-year-old with a skin of wine who'd tell Carl he was just the, <clears throat> the greatest thing ever, and there was always this, this string of 18-year-olds, and it was always the 18-year-olds. And, and they were going to write the goodest thing ever themselves. And uh, that, I think, as much as anything, drove him out of heroic fantasy. And he started writing horror. He'd always written some horror. He started getting serious about horror uh, because it had a higher level of readership on Fortunately, by that time he was beyond being able to write novels. Mm-hmm. And you had the horror boom of the '80s, and mm-hmm. he actually did get a contract—quite mm-hmm. uh, a good, you know, $65,000 contract from from Bantam, which was pissing money down the drain in lots of ways. Uh, <laughs> But uh, he, he got a very good contract uh, from Bantam for a horror novel. At the time of his death, gee, eight, nine years later, uh, there are two pages about the heroine's lingerie. Mm. and That's all he had written on that in, in that time. And that was with an existing short story that he was going to model mm. it, it on, The uh, Fourth Seal. Um,
0: was that uh, did that end up in the uh American Tales of the Fantastic no he didn't get it in there did he no um i don't, don't know if <sighs> i don't think he i i d- i that. don't i
1: don't know that he did um he he wrote some extremely effective horror stories i particularly liked um neither nor human mm. from since this is uh, a post centered uh World Fantasy Con. I'll, I'll mention is, is of course from the bells. Uh, they are neither man nor woman. They are neither brute nor human. They are ghouls, mm. and that was his view of fandom. Uh, <laughs> no, I, it's, it's quite literally Carl's view of you. You know what I said about um, the. Um, you know what drove him out of heroic fantasy. Mm. Read neither brute nor human and he's he's very explicit about it there. Now <laughs> that that is actually insightful now that I think about <laughs> what I just
0: said. <laughs> it's gosh, maybe it's com- coming up on uh 40 years since you re-entered the world.
1: Yeah. And January 15th 1971. So we're 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 he- headed for it.
0: We're headed for it. Yeah. For it, yeah. Um, and you're still writing. And yes, I am. still writing genre fiction. Yes, I am. Uh, tell us about that choice now as opposed to then. Hey. Um,
1: ever since in the mid-'90s, 96 actually, I wrote Redliners, which was—it was intended just to be a standard military SF adventure. And it wound up, I got just all sorts of stuff out of my system. It's about redemption. And I had no idea when I was writing it what was happening. And I finished it, and I just felt like 20 tons had been taken off my shoulders. And I won't say I put Vietnam behind me because I didn't, but it allowed me to get my head up out of there, and I can still look down into it, and I do, but I'm not living in that anymore. And since then I have been writing heroic fantasy and space opera, that uh, it would be sharp-edged for other people, but it isn't for me. I mean, you know, take, take some of the Hammer stories on the one side, or the Forlorn Hope, or Redliners and, uh, you know, compare them with the space operas I'm writing now, and they're just happier (laughs) books. You you know, as I said, I I don't mean that people aren't making hard decisions and that bad things happen, and, you know, one of the... (laughs) As I I said to somebody who'd who'd asked to be Tuckerized to have his name used in one of the books and then was horrified that his character is a slave dealer... And I said, well, for pity's sake, you've got a series in which the heroine is a borderline psychotic who kills people and has real trouble sleeping, and the hero is a womanizing drunk. And what did you think you were going to <laughs> but but you know they're genuine they're they're happy books they're people who've come to an accommodation and who do positive things and ha- the books have positive results which frankly the the hammer stuff the closest thing to a positive result is well the viewpoint character is alive and and just how positive that is depends on you know how you feel about the viewpoint character um didn't help me a lot. Uh,
0: well, I think it did. Sound, <laughs> well I th- it eventually, I think it really did. You're I, a lot happier now. I'm
1: I, thinking. I, I, I swear to God, I, I'm awfully, awfully fortunate that I had the writing to turn to, even though I didn't know I was doing that. And, and I'm, I'm just so lucky. And I, I talk to people about, you know, who who work at rescue missions and soup kitchens and how many nom vets they have. And there but for the grace of God. Uh, you know, I'd, I come from a long line of male drunks, and so I never started drinking. I, you know, I knew it was a choice, and, and the choice—there, <laughs> that word again. Uh, there were no men in my family who were social drinkers. There were guys who were teetotal, and there were guys who were luscious, and— um, is my choice so I didn't start drinking I never turned that way so I I found another way out but you know I i i was I was a very angry person when I came back to the world very angry uh, I had a a department head when I was working for the town screaming at me and it, it was funny he was he was screaming at me and I was looking at the situation well I'll come around his desk to the right he's a little guy and I will pick him up by the neck and the seat of the pants and I will throw him through the picture window to his right and, it's, I, will, and, and I mean I was just planning how I was going to do it and you know, his desk was in a corner so he, he couldn't have gotten away and he stopped screaming and I had said a word. <laughs> but I I think he did have a notion that uh this was not going to go in a good way. And it wasn't going to be a good way for me either, understand, but he was the one who was going out the window. And that was that was no fooling. That wasn't and that wasn't a I wasn't furious. It was, no, I, I'm going to kill him. And this is how I'm going to do it. And all right, uh he should not have been screaming. I mean, he was a he was a nasty little bully. But
0: that was not the Stephen King term is officious little prick from, uh, that, from The Shining. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. And,
1: and that that's uh and he would not have been much lost to the world. But uh, but that is not that is not a proper response. And mm. and that uh, I, I didn't have a governor. That is anything End game was me killing somebody. You know, there, it, it was all a continuum, and I, I never did it. I, you know, that was the only time I got really close to it. But I, I was not really safe to be around, um, and and I knew it, and I didn't admit I knew it. But but I, I'm not stupid. Um, but I just I needed to do something in the writing was the something. And if I hadn't had the writing, it might have been
0: something else, and that wouldn't have been as good. I've been speaking with David Drake. He's the author of the Hammer Slammer series. Thank you for joining me, David. (laughs) This has been really quite interesting.